So today on Animalia, we are talking about Jakarta, the capital city of Indonesia that is sinking, literally, and the government plans to move that city to Borneo, one of the most important biodiversity centers on Earth. I'm James. And I'm Nare. And we are talking today with Arta from the Borneo Nature Foundation. Hi, everyone. My name is Arta. Um, I'm from Borneo Nature Foundation. It's a local NGO based in central Kalimantan in Indonesia. So I'm working as part of the, the board of the foundation. And we are working to conserve the orangutan and the habitat and how and to support the local communities in, in harmonious ways to live with the environment. So um, thank you, James, for inviting me into this great discussion. listeners that you know maybe have never been in Indonesia don't know much about Indonesia just some high level information about the country it's a country inhabited by you know almost 300 million people so it's not that far from population as the United States i believe there's over 17,000 islands in Indonesia um of 6,000 are inhabited so it is a massive collection of islands and it really is a special place in terms of the divert biodiversity, wildlife, rainforests. Uh, most people think of Indonesia as Jakarta, which we're going to talk about in this episode, uh, as a very, very populous city. Um, and then I think some Westerners think of Indonesia as Bali, which has become sort of a trendy tourist spot for uh, people that I prefer not to hang out with. Um, <laughs> just a little, just a, a fair, uh, like a, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's become sort of a little bougie, let's just say that for Westerners, Bali has, um, even though Bali, I think is incredibly beautiful. Uh, I think the, the bougie Westerners have kind of ruined, ruined Bali for, for, for many, I don't know what the perception is for Indonesians, um, on that, but, uh, what we're, we're primarily talking about today with Arta, um, from the Borneo Nature Foundation is the island of Borneo and how important it is for uh, biodiversity, how important it is for carbon capture and climate change, and how it's been under threat really for decades, going back to the 70s with the palm oil industry, and now is under even more threat uh, with the potential move of the capital city. We're adding another another capital city beyond Jakarta. So Arta, thank you for joining us today. And do you want to start by maybe uh, just providing a little bit of your background um, and, uh, you know, how you got into the work you do at the Borneo Nature Foundation and, and why Borneo is such a special place in your heart. Okay, good. Yeah, so thanks, James, for the opportunity. So, uh, yeah, my name is Arta. I'm Indonesian, and um, I'm a biologist by, by degree. Um, I studied biology, uh, more like a pure biology, and then after I graduated, um, I started to take a work on orangutan from the beginning in the, one of the national parks in Kalimantan called Tanjung Putin. So um, I started there. That's, 
that was like back in 2005. Um, started to work for Orangutan, doing research conservations, and then it goes a lot of um, a lot of need going on there that apparently conservation is not enough at that time because uh, there's a lot of issues in conserving for Orangutan. Yeah. The habitat itself is being encroached, like what you say. There's a lot of a uh, dynamic on the need of the land and also with the communities and others. And from that role, start to graduate into working more and more into um, what is a climate works and then what is the how to work with uh, more sector and try to promote more a mitigated effort for for conservation with with the uh, development and others. So that led me to work in Kalimantan since 2005 or Borneo. Um, after several years, came to contact with BNF, Borneo Nature Foundation. Uh, they've been doing amazing work since 1999, actually, in Subangon National Park. And from that relationship, um, in 2016, um, we start to have a collaboration and they invite me to join the the foundation to be part of the board and ever since um i make a join the, the board in benef and then providing uh support in relation to policies and then how to bring the work of pnf from one side of working in the spango national park into wider area and now we we quite grow from the beginning 30% into 80% and we work in more areas than before. So I guess that's a bit background. I think a lot of people don't understand just how fast the, in, the Indonesian economy has grown and has been growing in the last 10 years. And it's, it's one of the quicker developing nations uh, in terms of that economic growth at the scale and the size, like we talked about nearly 300 million people. And it's, it's very pivotal in the sort of future of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, I remember my time working at TikTok and um, within ByteDance and Indonesia was one of the most important markets for us. I would say after India and the United States, in all honesty, Indonesia was looked at as the most strategic market and a lot of Chinese uh, companies are looking at Indonesia, whether it be for digital payments um, and, you know, financial infrastructure, um, you know, e-commerce, uh, Indonesia has really, really exploded. Uh, just, just to, you know, help folks understand that, you know, are not familiar with Indonesia's growth, uh, growth, sorry. Is there anything um, that you could point to that sort of highlights that anything that stands out? Do you, do you, do you feel and see the growth of the Indonesian economy and the growth of the digital economy in Indonesia in the last decade. That's very true, James. So, um, the the I think the wonder of uh, development been happening in the past, um, in the recent times. Yeah, and there's a lot of good things. There's a lot of bad things happening at the same time, right? So, like for example, for the good thing, it is this is the first time that Indonesia start to have a um, safety network, like a health service. Um, that they they don't have before, um, and that is bring it brings a lot of uh, good lights to the Indonesian because now it's accessible to go to to get to the 
medical care or something like that. Um, so it is changing rapidly, and but at the same time, it's also sacrificing a lot of things because uh, the economy backbone is still using natural resources use. So it's it is more minerals and then like plantation and others that uh, Indonesia is still like producer of raw materials that sacrificing a lot of the land. And at the same time, um, Indonesia with almost 300 million people, we, there's also so many um, new things happening like um, clarity, of, uh, clarity of land ownership by the communities. And then, um, yeah, uh, the rights of the local communities and others are still be, still being an issues. Agrarian issues, reformation is still going on there. So, um, it is very fast and it's risky at the same time. There's a lot of issues going on on the ground. So, um, that's why there's a lot of concern on start to have a safeguard on the development, and then we need to think like how the future should be looked differently than how we do things at the moment. Do you think um, Do you think it is possible to achieve? Like, do you think there's a good enough dialogue between the government and uh, um, the locals, the communities, and so on to be able to get there? Mm, that's, a, that's a good one. So there is, I have to admit in the past, there's not enough discussion on that. And um, some, so, the past will be like not so far away uh, that everyone was thinking, okay, we need to change everything into plantation or something to get the economy with disregarding what people, uh, the local communities do and what the local communities need. So um, that has started to gradually change. It's not as progressive as we hope for, but uh, we start to see sign now like, the indigenous people bills are start to be recognized, start to be discussed. There's a lot of rooms for campaign and focusing for local communities to express their need and what they want. Um, so there's started to happening and it's not an easy part because a lot of people have to voice it really out loud to get hurt by, by Jakarta, if you want to say that. I think, I think that's a good segue to talking about what's happening in Jakarta. So Jakarta is a city of 10 million people. Uh, although if you, if you factor in the surrounding areas of the city, it's probably closer to 30 million. And, you know, Jakarta is sinking uh, li- quite literally. It's, it's, uh, it's sinking at, I believe, uh, 10 inches per year. Um, it has sunk four meters since 1970. Uh, just for like context for people, um, <clears throat> that's like uh, stacking two NBA basketball players on top of each other. Uh, that's you know how much the city has has shrunk, uh, sorry, sorry, sunk, um, and it's a it's a big issue, right? It's 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 um, it's a it's a big threat to those ten to thirty million people in Jakarta and the greater area. Before we and then that that has led to uh, the Indonesia president. Um, Joko Widodo. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Arthur? You know, in, in a- April of last year, Joko announced um, that the country would be, you know, uh, planning a new capital city to move some people out of Jakarta. And in August of last year, he announced that it was going to be in 
Borneo um, in East Kalimantan. And uh, the cost of that is estimated, I believe, around $33 billion. And the plan is to move about 1.5 million people over the next five to six years. But let's first talk about why Jakarta is sinking. Um, and it's not the only city in the world sinking, by the way. The fastest city in the world is Mexico City, I believe, at 12 inches per year. And you know the, the belief is that there was, there was a big monsoon in 2007 that had left around half of Jakarta under 13 feet of water. And that same monsoon in 25 years from now could leave 95% of Jakarta under 25 feet of water. And by 2050, current estimates say that some 90% of North Jakarta will be just fully submerged, all like, you know, completely, not, not from a monsoon, not from flooding. It'll just be underwater. And from what I understand, there's three main causes of this. It's one, the water being drawn from the aquifers underneath, um, that a lot of pe most people in Indonesia are not getting water from piped water externally. And that's because it's more costly, it's more sporadic, it's less accessible. And so they're pumping directly from the aquifers um, underneath Jakarta. Two is what seems like kind of decades long, just sort of poor urban planning on the behalf of the Indonesian government um, and, not, and sort of not foreseeing these issues. And the third one being climate change with rising sea levels, because, um, you know, Jakarta as a coastal city, you know, as the sea level levels rise, then that, that's contributing to the problem. Very good assessment, uh, James. So it is. So um, you get the number very right. So it is it is because of the the uses of the groundwater yeah, by everyone. So like 60% of Jakartanis is using, is pumping the groundwater for daily media and only 40% is serviced by the state-owned water companies. So, um, so it is overuse of groundwater but at the same time, it's also because uh, it's really a fair assessment that is Jakarta is a example of a bad city planning, um, and it is a lot of the buildings actually also doesn't really make there's a regulation that every building have to have infiltration well, so water will flow into into the ground, uh, but this doesn't happen so like. In a study late 2018, it, apparently in one of the business districts, a government tried to do some some review, and from the buildings that in that particular area, only 40 that really have infiltration wells, and from this 40, only one that is really a proper, as indicated by regulation. So there is some issues that water being pumped out, but there is a lack of water coming in. So and this is really make the city become become sinking because the the, the land uh, is subsided, and um, so it is. It's a bad city planning. It's um, there's a study that if the government really wants to take care of this, then it's take another ten years. And uh, in our previous governors, um, there's already this discussion about the. The city planning, the the, um, the spatial plan of Jakarta that became uncontrollable, and because people just use it, uh, the city just sprawling without a proper planning, and um, it really create these kind of issues of, of water. But also, aside from that, a lot of issues. So it is thinking is became a main issues, but 
at the same time also the idea to to move up from Jakarta is that to manage that having a clear city planning and also because well I think Jakarta is quite quite popular because of the traffic jam and it is suggest that the commuting time take in Jakarta will be two until three hours per trip. So pe- so people need to go to their office, it will take them two hours to go to their office, sometimes three. And so in a day, you will take six hours just to be on the street. Yeah, I, I just, just for, I was in Jakarta in 2016. And um, yeah, it, it's sort of, I mean, Nare for context, it, it it sort of makes driving in London look breezy. Yeah, I was just saying the streets in London are built for horses, not cars. So I can kind of <laughs> relate to that. <laughs> it's hard when you're in Jakarta. It's hard to imagine you actually can even go somewhere because it doesn't look like any cars are ever moving. Like it's almost it's almost like a mirage that like it just everything looks static. Um, yet, yet, yet is in, is static in the sense of there's cars not moving, but there's an incredible amount of activity and energy in Jakarta because there's so many people. So it's, 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 it's quite, quite, quite fascinating, but I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, to go from one meeting back to my hotel would maybe be, you know, three kilometers and would take an hour and a half. I have a question. So what is the plan with um, you know, moving the capital, what types of workers are expected to move to the capital? Is it only civil servants or what industries? How is how is this actually going to reduce um, the, the tension that is um, in Jakarta and, and this whole burden? Um, is there a clear plan for that? Yeah, so, so the, the idea was only to move the capital city. So only the uh, civil servant will move to to the new city out from outside of Jakarta, so at, it it's almost like a similar to the arrangement of having Jakarta as the economy center, cultural and economy, like a New York thingy, and then the new city will be more like a DC, where only only government official will be there. That's the idea, um, and it will give a brief. So at the moment, like like. James already described, you, you have Jakarta that very vibrant with economy and everything, but because it's also center of political for Indonesia, yeah, so every especially last year, yeah, like every every day there will be a demonstration and in Indonesia, our demonstration is large you can have 100,000 of people marching on the street, so it's, it's also creating more <laughs> more issues yeah and so this this is the one of the ideas also like um how to make sure everything moves um to give a proper opportunity as well for the jakarta to mean to rebuild the city if you want to say that like as like the water only 40 percent was surfaced by water so like we don't have a good system even like until now in now in 2020 like this is the first time we have our MRT. And like this Indonesia is the latest city from the last city from Southeast Asia that tried to really build a proper uh, public transport. So it, it is taking 
a very slow progress uh, because of issue of corruption and others. Yeah. Um, now it's the time to to manage it. So, in a sense, everyone kind of like brief like, oh, okay, hopefully it will it will do something. And I I guess it would be worth to mention that air quality in Jakarta is number one, the worst in the world in two thousand nineteen. So like, there's a lot of things need to be to be done there. That makes sense. But there's also obviously the fear on the other side with building this new city, how that is going to affect biodiversity and everything. So I wanted to chat a bit about, if you don't mind, James and Arta, about uh, orangutans in particular and how this is going to affect uh, their natural habitat. Yeah, so uh, so it is. So um, so amazingly, when, the, when our president started to try to select a new area for the capital city, uh, Borneo was was selected, especially the East Kalimantan. Yeah, so it, it is in now in East Kalimantan called Penajam area. Um, so one of the reasons, so just putting it a big highlight because it's more because Borneo uh, is in the middle of the country. So you have five. So for context, Indonesia is quite, quite spreading wide. So we have three different time zones. So it's grown from Sumatra all the way until Papua. Um, so Borneo will be the island that really in the middle of it. So geographically, it's like really in the center. And the second is that Borneo is not part of the, uh, we call it the ring of the fire. Because Java, Sumatra is all ring of fire. So there's so many volcanoes. So it is really prone for disaster, uh, earthquake, and then. Uh, tsunami and others, so, but it also makes the area more fertile. Um, so Borneo is not part of that, so it's more uh, not prone to disaster. That's why it was selected for capital city. And the specific area that it's Penajam is, um, is yeah, it, it, there is a forest there, but there's also uh, there is a mining ex mining area there that needs to be rehabilitated. Um, we fa- we voiced a lot of concern during the selection, especially in Kalimantan and Borneo, like what will happen to the environment, how the city will look like, what kind of city will the government build, and what will be the function of the city, and and more of technical questions like that. And we raised a lot of concern on orangutan conservation in that particular area. So, um. At the moment, we don't see the detailed plan yet. The government uh, kind of like uh, promised to us is they gonna take a uh, they call it for forest city. So the idea will be how the city will be side by side by forest. So it's gonna be more more than fifty percent of the forest cover will be maintained in the new city. Um, there will be a national park in the in the city, and also there will be a conservation for orangutan program for the city. So, um, this is still on plan. We don't see the 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 site plan yet. So there's a lot of question in there. So, uh, people always try to voice to the government like we want to see more detail on that, and we want to make sure that we have the the room for discussion on that 
when things happening on the ground and we want to make sure that we can voice our concern in every in every step that they, they do. Do you do you know why Borneo was chosen? Any any has has Joko or his administration provided any context? The, the was there a like a evaluation system? Did they look at several possibilities? Um, what was the process of getting to the place? So clearly, they need to get people out of Jakarta. There's no, I don't think there's any refuting that at this point. Um, but what was the process from, you know, we need to get people out of Jakarta to this should be born and this should be done in Borneo? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Borneo is one of the areas that is secure from, from natural disaster. Yeah. So that's, one of the recent except for the natural disaster that is human activity human yes, yes. <laughs> um so one of the thing that the first uh, the first question was raised by everyone was where gonna be is it in java or outside of java so in the past during the suharto regime uh, there's already planned to move the capital city into west java which is the next province from jakarta yeah. Um, but these ideas are being being pushed back by a lot of people because um, Jakarta, Indonesia, it's we have seventy thousand islands. We have five main islands, but fifty six percent of the population live in Java Island, and the GDP of Java is like twenty percent. So, it's there's an issues of Java centrics. Um, in Indonesia, and people are not happy with that. They want to, to the government have to be in a place that it will see um, themselves as more Indonesia, not just Java. So then the idea has to be outside Java. And the question will be, is it Sumatra, Kalimantan, Sulawesi, or Papua? And then from several locations, there's several candidates, uh, Sulawesi and others. Um, so it's also being, there's a criteria on that, the, the access of land, the infrastructure, the willingness of the, the communities to host a capital city is also being assessed. Um, because having a cap- capital city is not just having a city, but you will see a lot of people. So if you are local communities, that the question will be, do you want to have a lot of outsider coming into your area? That's the question. Um, are you culturally willing to accept this and a lot of all the changes in it? So um, Borneo is one of the locations that, that the communities also in the local government, of course, everyone agree, but uh, it's, it's at that time, East and Central Kalimantan was more uh, showing that they are more open and more open to diversity for for new new people coming in into the area. So that's also became one of the the exacting factor being factored in by the government. Yeah. Yeah. That there seems to be like a plan to have a plan, but nothing is clear yet. Um. Um. Just, just like a tiny question there regarding, even like for having a plan for conservation, um, 
about orangutans and other species as well um, and the biodiversity. Um, do we know enough how to do this, how to build cities and, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, make sure that we do not damage the environment or this is going to be purely experimental and then we will learn as we go? Do you think the knowledge is there or there needs to be more research and more experimentation? Uh, that, that's really a good one. Uh, so I, I agree on your second. Um, I think we, that's why we always voicing our question because we want to see more detail on the plan and we want to know what others been doing. Um, yeah, I think I agree with you that we want to see more. Um, of the detailed plan, um, um, yeah, it's still, it's still not satisfying what they, what being discussed. Um, of course, there is a talk on that and ideas on percentage on how, how the city will be and how the city will look and operation, but we haven't gone into much more detail on that. So I guess it's true that we should really push on more research and more more studies being made on how how the concept will look like is there any serious talk or consideration also given to you know the question of you know how do we as indonesia you know curb and slow down population growth or is it is it just sort of accepted that economic growth and population growth go hand in hand and you can't have one without the other because you know that that seems long term like even if you move this, move some of the capital over to Borneo, if the population continues to grow at this rate, right, you're 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 just going to have, you know, the same issue happen in Borneo 10, 20, 30 years from now. Uh, as a context, in countries that is more based on agriculture, usually are really more thinking about having kids. More, it's helpful because you have kids that to manage your farms and things like that. So to change that, it takes time. And the campaign is quite really successful, I think. Um, and we just slow down the rate order. It's still huge. Um, but people are really uh, into that. And when when the economy goes up, of course, the, the level of the education for people to access is better than at the moment because it's... I think it's kind of like automatic when people having better education, having a better means to to pursue a um, career or path that they chose, they became more concerned about what they want to do in the future. And having that, they want to have a better quality of their life. So the, the, the old idea of having many children is the best thing that's already outdated that so um and of course it was this goes um the raising um the higher age for getting married is being being up in the in the past people will get married when they're still very young now it's kind of being pushed back into much mature age and others so uh Yes, uh, population is still uh, unsolved issues, but I can say that the campaign for for uh, control of birth rate and others are 
copying a lot of stuff, of course. Yeah, I mean, just on a side note for our listeners, you know, one of the, I think one of the more interesting and powerful ways to curb population in developing countries um, is actually to create more opportunity for women to own businesses, to access loans and finance. Because one of the things I've learned um, in my my time studying this topic is that you know, people need identity, right? And a lot of developing countries, the only identity option for, for women is to be mothers. And so naturally, if that's the only option they're given, well, they're going to be the best mothers they can be. And they're going to want big families to sort of show their strength in that regard. But if women are given opportunity to own businesses and to, um, uh, you know, run small businesses and access loans and all these things that, you know, traditionally they're not given, um, that gives them another outlet for identity. Um, and you know, some percentage of women will choose that over, you know, just, just pursuing motherhood. Uh, and it's just, just something that I always try to mention to folks to keep in mind that the, these, it's not just as simple as, you know, let's, let's, uh, put a cap on number of killed children, or let's, let's make sure they have access to contraceptives and sex education. All those things can, are important and can matter, but sometimes, I mean, just, just empowering women in these developing countries to be business owners, uh, can also go a long way. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the unique, uh, you know, peatland, uh, so agriculture and, and, and ecosystem that Borneo houses, um, and how important it is to to uh, climate change and um, and trapping carbon. Because this is another, you know, it's not just about you know orangutans and um, and and gibbons and cloud leopards and the amazing wildlife that Borneo houses and also indigenous people of, of Borneo as well uh, that depend on these lands. But the, the peatland ecosystem for folks listening, peatland is a type of wetland that holds uh, 12 times more carbon than most rainforests. So to give you a comparison, one hectare of peatland, um, if removed, if burned, if destroyed, can release 6,000 metric tons of carbon. Um, and that's the same as you know, 1,300 additional cars driving for a year. Um, you know, in, in 2000, another sort of example of this, in 2010 alone, the, um, the peatland clearing for the palm oil industry in Kalimantan released 28, um, released carbon equivalent to 28 million cars being added to the road. So I want to say that again, because it's a sort of shocking figure that people need to understand. So in 2010, the peatland that was burned for the palm oil industry, the amount of carbon that was thus released back into the atmosphere because of the carbon that that, that peatland traps is, is the same as adding 28 million cars to the road. So it's it's really important that you know we we spend some time talking about the importance of the Borneo rainforest and its role in, in not just Indonesia, but global climate change. Because as we lose rainforests and, and special wetlands like the, the peatland um, ecosystem of, of Borneo, it impacts all of us because it is increasing the, the amount of greenhouse gases in the world. And we're losing one of our best tools to manage greenhouse gas emission, which are you know, these types of wetlands that, um, that really do an amazing job of trapping carbon. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, that's very, uh, that's very good to point out, uh, Jim. So just want to add on that, that, 
uh, at Kenya, that's one of the things that we do, actually, try to... So we really care about the orangutan and how we do it is we conserve the habitat. And peatland was one of the, the critical area because it's in the lowland. And then a lot of the peatland is became the important habitat for the orangutan. So we try to work to conserve it as much as possible. At the moment, we're working in Subango National Park, which is about 500,000 hectares of peatland forest that they conserve um, in central Kalimantan. And we keep expanding. We Since two years ago, we promoted a new area of, for conservation. We call it Rungan. It's also peat and um, it's also peat area, so we try to promote another 100,000 hectares of areas being conserved for orangutan. And by doing that, we also conserve the peat underneath. So that's what you say, Jim. So we uh, we are competing with with, with everyone here, yeah, with, with the private sector for investment, with people for uh, a lot of uh, needs for that. So the one of the lot of these investment in the past pit became degraded because a lot of people see that pit is is cheap because it's not fertile so they so no one using it so and then when there's another start to come in and try to convert it so this is the issues that we're dealing with uh we try to conserve it, we rehabilitate it, we create canal blocking to uh, to block the, the water from flowing out and to rewet the pit again and try to promote a new ways of economy so for the local community using a, a commodities that is native to pit that will have a value for, for local communities. Before we get into, uh, I want to finish up talking about the Borneo Nature Foundation and the work your team um, is doing, Arta. The the one other question I wanted to ask is, how do Indonesians look at the palm oil industry? Because I imagine on one hand, it's 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 created a lot of economic value, right? That's you can't you can't sort of deny that Um, it's brought a lot of money into Indonesia. on the other hand, it's it's really decimated uh, the the ecosystem, especially in Borneo, and has become sort of uh, kind of the case study globally on on what not to do um, in, in sort of unbridled agriculture expansion. And now the world is sort of turning against palm oil. Um, you know, uh, at least here in, in the United States, it's like it's something that people are, you know, going out of their way to avoid. Now um, they're looking for products that don't have palm oil and aren't made from palm oil because they understand the sort of harm that 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 it causes in its in its harvesting. So I'm just curious on how how Indonesians um, you know look at the palm oil industry and and the conflict of hey this has brought in a lot of economic value for us that I'm sure has has allowed has 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 been vital to survival for for many Indonesians but it's creating so much long-term damages. Um, 
that it's going to be hard to unwind from. So how, how do Indonesians look at the palm oil industry and what would the average Indonesian person say if they were asked, are you for or against uh, this industry? Palm oil, yeah, it is. One, I think it's clear that palm oil is becoming too big in Indonesia. We have like 14 million hectares now of palm oil across the, the countries. And um, it is time to say stop. So actually any massive monoculture is not good. So not just palm oil, but any commodity that you make in a massive way on a monoculture is not good for the environment and for the biodiversity. It's not just that it's just a massive monoculture. It's not indigenous to the area. Like it's not a natural crop from what I understand. Um, And so like it has devastating impacts on the ecosystem because it is a foreign species of plant uh, that this sort of sucks up so much resources from the ground. Um, So it's not only a monoculture, which lacks the biodiversity, but from what I understand, it's not necessarily native um, in in, in the current form, in the sort of the mutated form to, to produce scale. It's not it's also not native to the ecosystem. Is that is that correct or incorrect? Yeah, the the palm oil came from Africa, yeah, but um, yeah, um, that's true. Um, I think it's about the nativity, but I think it's more about the way it needs to be, like you say, using a lot of resources and a lot of uh, land manipulation to grow it. But on that, on your question about it is. Palm oil is becoming huge, hit, big hit in the past um, because, like you said, it brings incomes, but also it it helps to create infrastructure on the ground, helps access to rebuild roads into villages that super remote in the past. And it has its value. And then now it's just too big. Um there's already now policies from the government to start to agree for moratorium for a new license for palm oil. So that's also already happening now. And we start to see um, there's an, they, we start to see that everyone is agree that we need to look back into our economy and choose the best way. And palm oil is a, it's a good, but it, like you say, has a lot of impact. It creates issues on environment, conflict on social conflict as well within local communities. Um, it shows all the problems that we never had before. One of the things that always is on my mind with these topics is how, you know, what countries like Indonesia, Brazil are doing in terms of, um, you know, some de- like deforestation, agriculture growth to, to grow their economy is no different at all than what the United States did, what Europe Europe has done. They just did it a lot earlier when there wasn't as, wasn't as much science um, available on the sort of externalities of that, of that work and the, and the dangers of climate change. And, and, you know, oftentimes it feels somewhat, um, uh, um, hypocritical and a double standard for like, you know, us in the West and, you know, Europeans or Americans look at Brazilian and Indonesians and say, how dare you, you know, um, you know, mow down your forests for the sake of, you know, growing your agriculture industry. Don't you realize this is bad for the climate? And it just, it, it strikes me as like, 
what a privileged, you know, sort of uh, lens we can put on that because we did the same thing. We just did it a lot earlier. And now we're sort of um, going after people for the, for doing the same work. So I, I struggle with this myself in the sense of, I, you know, I see a magical place of Borneo. I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting uh, Borneo in that same year in 2016 um, and, and, and seeing an orangutan um, in the wild. And um, it's, 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 it's a incredibly magical place that is unlike anything else on earth in, uh, in Borneo. Um, but, uh, and I desperately, you know, sit here from my home in Los Angeles and want Borneo to be preserved and get angry when I hear about Jakarta moving um, it's capital city there, but it's sort of easy for me to sit here and be angry about that um, when I'm benefiting, you know, from a lifestyle and economic standpoint and by living in a country that just did the same, that did the same thing just a longer time ago. <laughs> um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to grapple with. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I don't have all the the answers, but I, I do believe in a globalized economy we need to recognize that sort of conundrum that countries like Indonesia are in and say, hey, if we know that the damages from losing a place like Borneo, Borneo are massive from a climate um, change standpoint, that's going to affect us. It's going to affect everybody in adverse weather, rising sea levels, things like that. Then we should all chip in, right? And, and we should pay, you know, there should be an industry in Indonesia and people like like yourself that get paid to maintain ecosystems and get paid well from out from from capital outside of um, of Indonesia from countries like the US and China and 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 countries in Europe that all benefit economically benefit from Borneo sustaining and are should be willing to pay for that work um, so that you know we can actually say hey you can grow your economy by maintaining your wild ecosystem. Yeah. yeah, sorry for interrupting. Um, I was just saying, like, it's a classic international relations and finance economics issue. And you're right, James. Um, it's it's very easy to criticize those actions when uh, we all do benefit from what has happened in the countries that we live in years ago. And also we do collectively benefit from the biodiversity being sustained in those uh, developing countries. Um, however, like one thing that's clear, uh, this catastrophes are going to happen everywhere. In some countries, they're going to happen earlier than in others. Um, displacement is going to be everywhere. In some places, again, it's going to be faster and more un unexpected. So it's almost like, places where it does happen first we know the least so a lot of resources and energy and research should be put to figure out how to do this well and how to tackle because there are medium term kind of effects and action that needs to be taken um facing the crisis we're in and obviously longer term and it doesn't seem to be planned out in any uh thoughtful way unfortunately yeah that's that's thank you that's great that's a good point as well. Right? So, um, I I I can respond with this. So, um, a lot when I work uh, in the past, a lot of the a lot of people I work with with the government when we campaign about orangutan, they will be like, "Why would you care for orangutan, not for the communities?" 
that's also been a classic conservation question in the past that uh, why you choose which which one and what is the most proper way and um, it's gonna be the same that um, we've been through this kind of like narrative as well that um, thankfully at the moment like, like why the government start to agree on moratorium from the because from the push from the NGO system um, there's people are starting to see that they are responsible for what they act. So now Indonesia is also a lot of people in the government, They, when we talk with them, they start to agree that, okay, this is enough. Uh, yes, the changes are being pushed by everyone from, from the West and others, but it's also for the benefit for Indonesia. Uh, it's, a, um, it's kind of like the the challenges from the West, if you want to put it that way, are actually also kind of like a good thing to to open the mind for for Indonesia, and it is time now to start to see what's the need and what's the changes need to be done. And on that point, I agree that now is the important time to to create the alternative and I like what you say James that this why almost like sounds like our idea where because um there is a an incentive provided to the communities to to people that protect the forest and this will be um kind of like incentive because they lost the opportunity to develop and there's a thing that we need to work on um and also other types of commodities. So I think we incentivizing the wrong the wrong products. So like at the moment people will the consumer will choose to buy um products that cheaper sometimes and others well is not made into in a sustainable ways and also the product came from the communities that not directly produced by communities that is in the edge of the forest, that they keeping the forest from it. So how to change that? How to make a a market for their product that directly incentivizes the, these communities to uh, that are directly saving or protecting the area? So that's, that's a thing also that we need to work together, and like what Nari said, the investment that's um, it's the same. We need to talk with the investment that they are providing support in the wrong way. The um, economy that's too small by the communities, it sometimes it's not feasible for them. They will say it's not bankable, it's not investable. And how to change that, and how to shift it into something that can support can support an industry or a small scale communities uh, economic activity. So these a lot of questions that um, are needed to be answered and Indonesia cannot cannot do it themselves. So it needs places from 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 US from from the UK from the US to you have a lot of uh, good science to think about. Um, creating 
uh, alternative and innovative way to to create a new system yeah, that will change the the way how we think that we have to comfort our natural resources to get money from it. So that's it's a I think this is very yeah a good a good talk to to have and to be continued in the future. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think the more awareness we have of, of these, these issues and, um, you know, the more momentum we can, we can create, ultimately these things get solved on a global scale. We need a global economy. We need global cooperation. In some ways, the biggest threat to, uh, you know, to the continued sort of deforestation issues happening in, in developing countries is populism. And, you know, sort of a world where every nation is out f- for itself and, and has to fend for itself. You know what I mean? Um, because then, you know, there is no choice but to, to do what, what um, you know, Indonesia or Brazil have to do to survive. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, just another sign, too, that the kind of global movement of populism from a you know, government and nationalism standpoint is completely counterproductive to you know finding solutions um, that allow countries like Indonesia to grow their economy, improve their livelihoods, while also um, you know uh, fighting climate change and not not contributing to that. Um, lastly, uh, let's just I want to make sure we talk a little bit about your organization, um, the Borneo Nature Foundation. Can you tell us just a little bit about how long it's been around, what your role is. Um, what the you know the team looks like, um, and and some of the work that that your team does. Um, so we started in nineteen ninety nine. It's actually a a program from collaboration with students from the UK actually um, to do research on peat and orangutan in Central Kalimantan, and back into nineteen ninety nine they started this and. They continue supporting a research area. This is about 55,000 hectares, which is part of National Park, uh, Subaho National Park, that I mentioned earlier, that is really on peak. And this research has been going on until now. Um, this is the one of the backbone of BNF. And further, uh, BNF was um, kind of like evolved from a research into conservation and starting in 2015 we start to take a look from two different areas we want to involve we want to contribute more to to Borneo so we try to work in other areas as well and we start to do some work at Karangas and Pitmo site for us Kaurungan uh, which is around 150,000 hectares and we work together with the local government and communities to try to support this. And just to, for information, like now we're also facilitating the local communities to to apply for their indigenous forest license to the government. Um, because now we start to find the, the link between conservation and the indigenous people uh, start to be able to work together more and more closely. And the last one in 2017, we started to work also at the the up the most north area of Central Kalimantan, which is the mountainous, on the heart of Borneo area, and we 
start to work with the local government and local communities and um, private sector in surrounding area try to establish a resource area and also conservation for orangutan. So this is kind of things that BNF do. Um, so BNF uh, summary been going on from 1999 and we became a full Indonesian NGOs in 2016. So uh, now we are powered by about 80 staff now and 90% is from uh, from local, from the Borneo. Uh, but we also have a lot of uh, uh, support from outside. So we have an affiliate organization called BNF International that based in the UK. So we try to collaborate between the international uh, people from the UK and the Indonesian to work together on building this this uh, foundation going forward. So myself, uh, back in 2016, when they became Indonesian NGOs, um, uh, colleagues from BNF asked me to join and to be part of the board. So I'm the chairman of the board for BNF. Um, so my role is to, well, to guide the, the organization to reach its its impact, to make sure it's always contrib- to be more and more progressive in contributing to the environment in Borneo um, and how to enlarge our capacity to, to help on the ground. So that's been happening until now. And I think we can proudly say that we keep expanding ourselves um, we work we have formal collaboration with the government we are having a good collaboration with universities from central Kalimantan from Indonesia and also from uh, outside um, so um, now we keep doing the research and conservation as the backbone programs for for PNF in Indonesia as well as yeah. so I think that's a brief of PNF. The Indonesian government, I assume, is, on one hand, they're they're. It sounds like they're supporting the work of the uh, Borneo uh, Na- Nature Foundation and um, providing some assistance, providing so providing support for you know organizations that are you know kind of the antithesis to what you do um, in terms of palm oil, moving the capital city, you know, whether it's directly or indirectly through subsidies, is it, is it just the reality that, you know, the, you know, the government's always going to be playing sort of both sides of the, of the issue um, in, in, in order to sort of also avoid going all on one side versus the other, just in terms of, I'm talking about the, the issue here being the conservation of Borneo um, or, or is it a matter of, there are some officials within the government, you know, some, you know, some divisions of the government that are pro, you know, preserving Borneo and some of them that are pro, you know, sort of, you know, uh, using it for economic gain. And then there's just a, uh, people on both sides of that that are passing different policies and issuing different funding. Uh, well, how, how does it how, how does that shake out? I think um, I think there's a OK, so to make it clear, like the funding that we get from the government less when you read the report, it's from ICCTFA, it's a trust fund. The funding is provided by the UK, actually, from the UK government. So there's a trust fund at that time. Um, 
the UK government agreed to put their support into the system, and then the funding was used for pit rehabilitation that PNF also accessing that through competition as well. A lot of NGOs also have that, so it's not a so it's not a, a program that will kind of like their government give government opinions are giving, and then the NGOs will will ha have a line program on that. So uh, it's not like that. It's almost the same with like the, what the US said give. Um, so that's one. Um, Second, how the perspective of government and NGOs is. So it's it's always dynamic change. So like it's the same like PNF. We took a long time to get MOU with the local government. We don't have an MOU with the national government until now, but we work more because we work more in the ground. So we work more together with the local government, and it takes a long time. Like what I said earlier. Uh, the paradigm the, to convince that what we do is actually for the benefit of the country itself is also taking time. And um, there will be people um, on various level of government that view that it is a, a, a good invention that they will agree on it. Um, but of course, at the at the national wide, if you want to talk about is the government playing how, what the dynamic with the NGOs? Um, yes, there is a dynamic on that, but PNF because we work more on the ground, like more like conserve and research, so just more like the modus operandi of PNF. So we don't really uh playing with that with that policy dynamic yet, change yet. So that will be something more of a right? That's, that's helpful. Um, lastly, just wanted to, you know, have you share your, your favorite, um, you know, uh, Borneo wildlife story. I'm sure you have, uh, encountered you know, some amazing, amazing species, uh, that, um, over the course of your, your life and work as a biologist and with the Borneo nature conservation, is there one story that sort of sticks out, uh, that you'd like to like to share? Mm, I guess it. I guess I can say that one of the things that makes me always stay in this in this field was when um when when I started to work as for conservation yeah and, and in Borneo and in my previous work the organization I work with they have a rehabilitation center for orangutan and at that time it was um I was given. An opportunity to to manage the program, and it was a, it was a mind blowing for me at that time because one we have to rehab this orangutan uh, that came from from forest because of they being converted into into plantation or others, and then we need to rehab and release it. And when we try to release it into the forest. At that time, it was so difficult because all the forest already owned by someone or something. And then if we have to be creative and we need to buy a license for forest to enable us to release the forest. And even 
doing that, we have to work hard to to raise the funding for for buying a forest, yeah, like a like a logging company. And then when we try to put it on the ground, we have to also talk with the local communities on because how to mitigate the conflict between the orangutan and the communities. And then we have to create more program for for livelihood. So um I guess it's well sorry it's not a, a super story but it's it that's the level of commitment you need to do for conservation I guess that will take you a wider and wider angle on how to work and how to make sure that can be happening and it's I'm amazed by a lot of people that really doing a lot of work on the ground and keep supporting that and try to make sure with all these challenges that it will happen and that's um, I think that's it's one of the wonderful stories that I'm sure you also gonna feel James when and everyone when you start to involve then you feel the earth like what you said when you listen to a news about Borneo you feel you feel move to 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 do something and that's I think that's the excitement yeah yeah the the for me the striking memory of you know when I had that first encounter in the wild with orangutans um from just observation based obviously we kept I was with a guide who kind of brought me you know kind of deep into uh, Borneo and we stayed we stayed our distance probably 20-30 feet away just to observe but what was so well like what what crystallized for me was just how human like orangutans are in their mannerisms and their behavior and their their social dynamic i mean it it is a spitting image of us um in that regard it's hard to describe until you sort of see it and how content they are with just having their health and having access to food and having family and playing games with each other. And, um, you know, it, it just sort of reminds you that, you know, we don't need all the stuff we think we need to, to be happy, that that is sort of what our, our society and system have kind of pushed on us to think we need to be happy because the people pushing those things benefit financially when you have hundreds of millions of people pursuing material stuff and um there's a there's a there's a opportunity for such a whole and wonderful life um if you just have your health and you just have loved ones around you and and you have you know freedom to to play and to enjoy and downtime and relax um in addition to you know having to work and, you know, for orangutan that the work is finding food and, um, you know, uh, you know, creating their, uh, creating their, their sort of bamboo umbrellas, which I, I always find, <laughs> uh, funny to, to watch. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's just, a just a reminder in observing orangutans because they're so similar to us, how, how sort of complete and whole life can be, um, uh, without material things. And, um, yeah, it's it's sad to know that that's sort of really just gone um, for the you know ninety 
5% of human beings, but it's, but you know, our pursuit of material stuff is also destroying the lives of those humans, be it indigenous people or orangutans that are not pursuing those things. And, you know, are, are living in a way that is harmonious with their ecosystem, with other life that, you know, is not selfish whatsoever. Yeah. It was just a, for me, it was a kind of profound movement that played a big role in my, my growth as well of, you know, getting out of just kind of looking at how do I just accumulate wealth into how do I actually contribute to sort of, you know, you work conservation work and this other stuff. But that moment in 2016 with those orangutans, definitely you know stands out to me yeah that's amazing what is one uh book you know that you know you recommend people read around climate change conservation or something that really inspired you in the work that you do today uh i would say homo deus yeah from the yuval hariri book that's really interesting sees how we became human and how we Develop technology and agriculture, yeah, and how we fix into that system. Also, it was, I think, it was kind of like nicely written and gave a lot of thoughts on that. Um, that I'm oh, sorry, it will be not the Homo Deus itself, but the Sapiens, the the first book. Yeah, that would be awesome. Great. Um, what is a you know, uh, a film or a documentary or a TV series uh, around climate conservation work that you think everyone should see? Hmm, I need to think on that, James. Um, consumption and then waters. Um, uh, it's really good one on the climate. Yeah. Before the flood. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what is your favorite animal? Sea uh, turtle. Sea turtle. Awesome. And lastly, what is one behavioral change that you think everybody could adopt that would benefit the climate? What's one simple thing everybody in theory could do? Having enough. Yeah, being moderate in everything, even in lifestyle. I think that would be an amazing way to change the world. Um, meaning like how you eat and how you use your, how you use your, uh, even dresses because fashion is also really creating a lot of impact on the ground. Yeah. Um, so it's all on that, that I think having enough, that's, um, that can go into very, very wide way to change. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll, we'll keep talking over WhatsApp.